0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Welcome back. This is part three of our discussion of George Harrison's All Things Must Pass.
0: And now we put that record back in its sleeve and we take out the record that I'm prepared to vigorously defend over what I assume to be an onslaught from you, Apple
2: Jam.
1: No, it won't be an onslaught. I just don't have a ton to say. So this will be like where, you know, you kind of just turned Wonderwall over to me for a while. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to just kind of turn
0: this over to you, bro, (laughs) and take it. Side five, Apple Jam. So this is the disc I put on in the background when we have company over Uh because it is ambient, beautiful rock music that exists in the background and sounds really, really, really good, but doesn't have much that you need to necessarily focus on within it. So this is, I suspect maybe what the non-psychedelic version of something like watching rainbows or whatever was likely similar to just a lot of noise that was familiar to the time. And in this case, you know, a lot of bluesy jams, you know, rock and rockers and things like that. And I would defend this in the way McCartney defends magical mystery tour. <laughs> you know, he says, where else are you going to see? I am the walrus music video. I would say, where else are you going to hear up to an hour of a Beatle, just playing guitar and having fun and mm. playing rock and roll and jamming and stuff. I mean, it's, I think unique in their catalog. You could point to maybe like a side three of sometime in New York city or something, but that's kind of a different beast anyway.
1: And you say it's a different beast, but I actually see them as very similar in the sense that I always thought that disc two of sometime in New York city was kind of a bonus. John and Yoko gave you a lovely album a good little 42 minute album or whatever it is. And then they throw in an extra disc of weirdness and you can listen to it or not, but I don't see why that would take away from how good the first disc is. And same here. This is a bonus. Yeah. No, I'm not crazy about Apple jam. I don't return to it often, but it has no bearing on the first two discs for me. No. Yeah. It's not like, Oh, this too bad. This drags it down. Not at all.
0: Early bonus features. Yeah. Of the time. And I'm, So happy it exists because there is enough curiosities on it and enough um, little points of interest that you would just never get anywhere else. So, for example, on this one, that's Klaus Vormann playing lead guitar on Out of the Blue, doing Uh an Eric Clapton impression. Now, that's awesome. (laughs) You know, Klaus... Because Klaus is a very accomplished musician, obviously was playing a lot with the Beatles. In fact, there was rumors at that time that they were going to replace Paul with Klaus Vorman and get the Beatles back together and stuff. But, you know, Klaus was an early follower of the group. It was really interesting to hear Klaus's point of view, particularly on the very early Silver Beetle kind of stuff, where Klaus's ear was attuned to the rhythm section of Pete Best and Stuart Sutcliffe. Can you imagine that? Is somebody... (laughs) Who thought of Beatles <laughs> as the Pete Best Stuart Sutcliffe show, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that's really interesting in and of itself. But yeah, so here's Klaus just really killing it. And you get the Rolling Stones brass section. You get Jim Price and Bobby Keys. Has there ever been a better brass section in, in rock? Maybe the the wings over the <laughs> wings over America brass section, but that's pretty damn close, Bobby Keys and Jim Price. So It's got that going for it too, this whole front and back of the record, which they're on most of the the songs. throughout the blue you have it's johnny's birthday now this one's really cool i'm sure i'm sure our listeners out there know but for anyone who does not know it's johnny's birthday was one of the songs commissioned by yoko ono for john's 30th birthday of which many people contributed tracks um, there's a donovan track called here come the threes that he sang for john there is a janice joplin track which i, I think we had mentioned on either the last recording, or maybe we didn't, but it was actually in the mail to Lennon when she died, actually. She had recorded it very shortly before she, she passed away. But basically, Yoko was going around trying to get different 30th birthday songs for John to celebrate his 30th birthday, and this is one of them. And they, I guess they just put it on the record. I don't know why, other than this, the fact that they had the space. Still, where else are you going to get that? <laughs> you know, Especially at that time.
1: So it's an old song, I guess, or it's based on an old song called Congratulations that's written by Martin and Coulter. I don't know who Martin and Coulter are. It's Bill Martin and Phil Coulter, and they actually filed a claim for royalties. (laughs) So more plagiarism charges for George Harrison. <laughs>
2: Good lord!
1: And eventually they did get credited. So on the I'm looking at the the 2000 re release of All Things Must Pass, and it does say based upon "Congratulations" by Martin and Coulter. But I'll see if I can dig up the song "Congratulations." Uh, apparently, Cliff Richard's 1968 hit "Congratulations,"
0: which George would have certainly heard because they were on tour with Cliff Richard. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but initially it was in fact just credited to George Harrison, so oops.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations and celebrations When I tell everyone that you're in love with me Congratulations and jubilations I want the world to know I'm happy as can be could be happy and contented I used to think that happiness hadn't been invented but that was in the bad old days before I
0: As a lawyer would say, that's a pattern. Yeah, well, also, I don't know if we
1: talked about My Sweet Lord being kind of a Delaney song. There's an account that George came to him and said, how do you write a gospel song? And Delaney said, like this, and picked up and started playing He's So Fine and singing My Sweet Lord over it. And that when it came out, Delaney was upset, was like, I don't see a credit for me on here. And George said, oh, I'll take care of it later. I got that from a book called Behind Sad Eyes. Wow. So if someone wants to double-check me on that, they can. But yeah, that's a pattern. That's three on one album. (laughs) Uh Well, two, two on one album, but multiple complaints about one, you know?
0: Yeah, you know, the Beatles just kind of came from the school where, especially in the early days when the stakes were so much lower, that that was so commonplace.
1: All the Led Zeppelin stuff, too, that were basically blues tracks.
0: Oh, yeah. It's like when you hear I Feel Fine, that guitar riff is basically just Watch Your Step, which is the the Bobby Parker tune that the Beatles used to cover in 61 and 62. And there's also a bit of what I say in there. And so no one was really calling them out on it necessarily when they were in the clubs and stuff. And, And honestly, that's in the tradition of music anyway, where you take stuff that came before and just kind of build on it but I guess once pop music became the behemoth that it became due in large part to the Beatles success you know that's when you have to start taking these things a little bit more seriously and I think that this type of stuff is maybe growing pains of the industry in general with sort of George at the as the unfortunate one who had to go through a lot of it (laughs) or shoulder a lot of it.
1: Yeah, check this out. This is Delaney Bramlett. I called up George and told him that I didn't mean for him to use the melody of He's So Fine. He said, well, it's not exactly, and it really wasn't. He put some curves in there, but he did get sued. Yeah, he goes on to say, when I saw I wasn't credited, I called George and said, George, I didn't see my name on the song. He promised me that it would be on the next printing of the record. I was never given credit on that song, but he did admit that the song, to a large extent, was mine, and I never saw any money from it. Huh. So it seems like He's So Fine is just one of the problems. (laughs) (laughs) Too bad Delaney didn't get sued for stealing He's So Fine, huh? (laughs) That
0: that would have been real easy. (laughs) Out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) I'm crediting you after all, Delaney. Don't worry. (laughs) Ay, ay, ay. Anyway, yeah. I always loved its Johnny's birthday, all 49 seconds of it. I always thought it was a delight. <laughs> yeah, but what I liked, I guess, was the song Congratulations. It's
2: your-
0: Well, when I think congratulations, I think of a different George Project later, which we'll get to much, 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 much later. Mm. Um, Anyway, that brings us to the final track on this side of Apple Jam, Plug Me In. Uh, I don't have much to say about this one other than it's a faster paced, more Chuck Berry style tune than Out of the Blue. Although of interest on this one, Derek and the Dominoes are on this, as we talked about before. This album was sort of the origin point of that band, Derek and the Dominoes. And um, this track, along with Thanks for the Pepperoni, features all of the members of that group, plus George. And so I thought that was interesting. And so again, you know, hearing the origin or the primordial soup of a group that would become very important to rock and roll is also another uh, point of significant interest, I would say, on Apple Jam. Definitely. So you flip that over to side six and you have I Remember Jeep. There's a really nice sound effect opening on this that is, I think, you know, kind of in the vein of pointing toward that sound effecty, y ish type of stuff in the 70s. But then you slide really straight into a uh, more of like a blues rock shuffle kind of thing. I think the reason I like I Remember Jeep primarily is because they sound like they're having fun you kind of really get that sense on here. And it's also interesting because it's the only track on the album to feature both Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker together um, after the demise of Cream, which is kind of neat. George had this to say about the track. Jeep was actually Eric's dog, a funny kind of orange-brown dog with pink eyes. I think he might have kicked it. I'm sure he has by now, but I know it was his dog. So I guess that's where Jeep comes from.
1: A lot of dog references at this time.
0: And that brings us to Thanks for the Pepperoni, maybe my second favorite instrumental on the thing. It's another one that has that kind of um, bopping, sort of rock and rolly classic rock. By classic rock, I mean 50s rock sort of thing.
2: It's
1: a vamp on rollover Beethoven.
0: Right. And I guess this was, uh, the title was taken from Religions, Inc., the final track of the 1959 comedy album, The Sick Humor of Lenny Bruce. George said of this one, if you listen to Lenny Bruce's Religions, Inc., he goes on about the Pope and things, and then he goes, and thanks for the pepperoni. I mean, you got random tracks, so it's like what can we call it for the jams i didn't want to just throw in a cupboard and yet at the same time it wasn't part of the record that's why i put it on a separate label to go in the package as kind of a bonus so there's george talking about how this is a bonus disc the same as you Another point of interest on this, some of George's longest ever recorded guitar solos. That is uh, another bit of specialness about Thanks for the Pepperoni. And that's it. That's Apple Jam. So if anyone doesn't have this disc and you have a bunch of relatives over that you would very much like to tune out, just pop on (laughs) Apple Jam, you know?
1: Now, you've just revealed to anyone who listens to
0: this who would go to your house (laughs) that you're tuning them out. (laughs) Uh, but it is it is awesome i love to just have this on and have it as ambiance just in my day-to-day life in fact i probably listen to that disc more than any other disc on that on the record one of my most played discs in my collection i think
1: Very cool. So that's it. That's all things must pass. Now, before we move on to extra material, I did want to discuss with you briefly the remix, the 50th anniversary remix, which I finally got around to listening to and did not care for. <laughs> I mean, okay. Well, you like the Spectre sound. I like the Spectre sound. And first of all, I always see remixes as a little bit of a novelty. Like a remix is a bit of a novelty to me. It never becomes definitive for me. Just to be clear to our listeners, remastering is a very different affair from remixing. Remastering is the sort of polish that you put on the mix downs after they're mixed down. Remixing is going back another step, changing levels between the instruments, making that guitar part a little louder, EQing things differently down at the track level. It's not that I dislike remixes. They can be fun and they can be illuminating. And this one was illuminating. I heard things that I normally don't notice. And it's not that they're not there in the final mix or the the original mix. It's just that somebody turned up the guitar part, like I just said, and you're kind of noticing it. And now when I go back to the original mix, I'll have that information. And I'll listen to the original mix a little differently. But original mixes are always, that's the real deal to me. And remixes are always a little odd. I I wasn't that excited about the tug of war remix or the pipes of peace remix to me. It's just, I'm always going to go back to the original, but that's just how I am. I don't like stuff. That's different. (laughs) Quote red letter media. Don't like stuff. That's different. I like it the way it was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I am the (laughs) diametric opposite. I love a remix partly because I'm tickled by the idea, you know, like what you said. I'm really entranced by those Giles Martin remixes of the Beatle albums, particularly on songs like Long, 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 where you can suddenly hear things, which you never heard before, but in a really, in that case, significant way. Although, I would say, there are aspects of this remix that I simply don't care for. And in fact... I think they kind of took the tooth out of some of these songs. Mm -hmm. Like Wawa, for example, sounds very soft to me. Now, I I appreciate the fact that they're trying to give more sonic space between different things. And ultimately, that's kind of what I always wanted out of this record. But the way it was done here, I don't think is exactly what I wanted.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think, for example, the horns on the title track are just on the cusp of cheesy on the original but here on the remix they're cheesy they're too exposed and it sounds goofy it's like oh dude it's not some mysterious horn thing off in the distance it's like some annoying saxophones right in your ear you know (laughs) (laughs) it just sounds dorky (laughs) you know
0: (laughs) well so The thing that I like about remixes, and again, I'm one of these people that once a new version of the thing goes out, that's the new one that I go to, whether it's a movie or anything like this.
1: Oh, wow. Well, we strongly diverge. Uh, I own a Laserdisc player just so I can fucking see Star Wars looking like Star
0: Wars. ah, yeah. Don't even get me started. I don't need it. (laughs) I'd rather see the big (laughs) dewback lizards back. Because, you know, it's more to like chew (sighs) up, you know? Because I don't care, ultimately. You know, I mean, I... I, um, well Star Wars is a whole other conversation we could get sucked into yes, but I'm the co- I'm, it is. I'm the type of person but I'm wary of special editions because of it well that's why I like sort of like I, I don't mind going back in and tinkering with it because as far as I'm concerned it's like well the original's already out so you may as well have some fun with this thing and it's a new excuse to go back in and listen to stuff that you wouldn't necessarily hear before So in the case of the Beatle albums, I love the fact that Giles Martin has turned up the rhythm section on all the tracks almost without exception. Because that's more of a modern sensibility, right? So you typically get drums louder and bass louder on modern stuff. So that's what Giles Martin has done in a lot of those cases, which I actually really love. But here, for some reason, I find the drums and the bass to be turned down in weird ways. And Hmm. it, it has taken a lot of the bite out of it for me. Now, I appreciate the fact that we have modern mixes of these, particularly, I mean, just for the sound quality. It, whenever you go through and do these modern mixes, they tend to s- start to sound less dated to me personally over time. I wish someone would go in and remix all the monkeys records and have them sound really modern and um, clean. I don't want old things to sound modern. I really don't like that. Okay, well, fair enough. And, and I see you and I hear you. Or me. look modern. I don't like old movies to look modern. Yeah. With Beatle records, for example... I'm so happy that they exist because they, they're suddenly so much more accessible to people when you have the thing continually updated so that it's keeping up with the technology of the day and the sensibilities of the day. Suddenly it's a lot easier for a kid to get into Beatle music because it's being approached from a similar point of view as the other music they're already accustomed to listening to. So it has a tendency to make it sound a little more timeless, in my opinion.
1: I feel a little differently about the whole remix thing, because like I said, I actually do find them enlightening. So it's not as if I don't want them. <laughs> it's just, I'm not saying I don't want them. Yeah. Whereas, please leave old movies alone. I want them to look exactly the way they looked. Mm. Because in that case, you're messing with the aesthetic. In some cases, you're sucking all the life out of an old movie by making it look all digital. You weren't meant to see the makeup. You weren't meant to see how the plastic, the sets are like that was supposed to be hidden by the lovely blurriness of film. That's kind of a different matter from remixes, which I feel like that's just a shining a different light on the thing. Sure. I didn't care for these remixes, but I still got something out of them. Yeah. Just like I do out of all remixes. I hear a few things, things are brought to my attention that I hadn't noticed because I was in such a groove with the original. But like I said, what I really want to do is take that information back to the original. It's like, so I, now I know there's this guitar part hidden down there that I wasn't paying attention to. I'll go back to the original, I'll pay attention to it now, mm. and I'll know about it now. Yeah. But I still am going to ultimately, the original is going to be my definitive version. Like I don't know of a case that I've ever come to prefer a remix. Not
0: one. The White Album, for me.
1: Remastering's another matter. Sometimes what? the original CD didn't sound that good and somebody comes along 20 years later and masters it beautifully. And it, it sounds better. That's another matter. But yeah, remixes, they're never really legit to my mind. Yeah. It's like, you're messing with the actual art. If you change how loud that guitar is by three DB, you have changed that record. It's sort of like someone went in and tweaked the lyrics or something. But it partly depends on, you know, I'm I'm an audio engineer, so like I feel strongly about turning up a guitar 3 dB. Other people might have a different sort
0: of, you know, they're not listening quite as technically as I am, but... And not to keep beating this dead horse, but for me, it really depends on what we're talking about. And I think I prefer the Beatle remixes almost wholesale, at least the very original CD releases, particularly like what is it called, that fake stereo, like converted from mono? Now, what
1: are we talking about when you say remix, the, the box set? The Giles Martin remixes. Of oh, the, okay. Yeah. So that's an example where, okay, the 2009 Beatles albums, when they were remastered, those sound better than the 1987 CDs to me. Sure. That's a case of remastering that they made it better. Right. Still doesn't sound as good as the LPs. Still rather hear Beatles LPs. Sure. But between those two sets of CDs, I'll take the 2009s. Thank you very much.
0: And see, from that, I would take the Giles Martin remixes, even above the 2009s, because I appreciated the choices he made, and it it updated it to me to, again, preserve it and have it feel a bit more timeless, as opposed to unique to 1968.
1: Who's your favorite author? Name an author you like reading. Uh, Like Stephen King?
0: Well, I don't know. Really read a lot of prose. I mean I read more comics. All right.
1: Well, that. let's just say I'm just trying to think of a good analogy. Like you sit down to read a Stephen King novel from nineteen, you know, seventy-five or something, from nineteen eighty, whatever. And someone other than Stephen King has gone through and they've tweaked a few adjectives, you know. They weren't really the best choices for adjectives. I'm gonna change this adjective. I'm gonna you know what? I'm gonna <laughs> fix this sentence. I never did like this sentence. I mean that to me, that's what that's like. And yeah, the plot will be the same. The book is a little bit the same, but the the choices the author made there, that's that. You know, and, and to me, even the author can't go back and tweak it. But definitely someone other than the person who created it shouldn't be going back and tweaking it. Uh, but maybe maybe I hold things a little more sacred,
0: you know? Uh,
2: a little more sacred right, cow. Well,
0: let's not let's not have it be that conversation. <laughs> Maybe you just don't hold things as secret as I do. I, I, I do. I, I guess no, what I'm saying No, I didn't is mean
1: that way. I, I didn't mean it that way. Maybe I'm just a little more averse to the tweaking, you know? No, I don't mean it as, oh, I care more than you do. I'm not doing that. No, 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 I'm no, no. Just, I, I'm not doing that. I'm just saying- Maybe I'm a little more attached to the original. I get a little offended. And you're, you know, ready to go with the flow.
0: So, I guess I, yeah. I, I'm more interested in preserving it because Beatle music is so timeless to me that I would much rather have it be preserved in the trappings of the different eras and mm-hmm. therefore more accessible to people or better sounding in some cases, just updated with the technology. If it's a tasteful remix, in the case of Giles Martin, who is connected to the Beatles' legacy, then I think that there's, then that's totally valid. In this case, mm. Danny was involved with the mixing, although it was not, I forget the guy's name, he was not, you know, he wasn't like a a George insider or something. But Danny was involved. I don't, like these choices necessarily i guess i just like how modern it does sort of sound whether for better or worse i don't know but like i said i think in this case particularly they kind of took some of the tooth out and i didn't really appreciate that yeah but whatever we'll get around to the 60th and somebody will do it again and we'll hear it a different <laughs> <way>. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The audio holograph version will come out and you know.
0: Well, for anyone who was uh, who was thinking like we were uh, agreeing on too much, we finally found our go. line in the there sand. You go. There we go. So let's talk about these um, these additional tracks. Now, I hesitate to call these bonus tracks because george just had so many songs at the time and in some cases they did see the light of day and in some cases they didn't but on the 2020 release which was technically released in 2021 they did give a selection of tracks which pretty much covers like the together tunes from that era and some of these are actually some of my favorite george songs going down to golders green is the first one we'll talk about here I, I think this is one of my favorite George songs. I just love going down to Golders Green so much.
3: Well, I wake up every morning, rushing down to work. i on the diamond rings to keep myself out driven the Going down to Golders Green. Going down to Golders Green. Going down to Golders Green.
0: the floor i'm pretty sure it's about a crematorium and how he's going to ride there in his limousine which is very very funny to me
1: there's the obvious elvis presley vibe we're getting on this yeah so musically it strikes me as doing a little bit of an elvis presley 50s rockabilly thing But then, yeah, these lyrics are another matter, huh?
0: At night, I don't go out much. I stay at home for peace, trying to get the most out of my 99-year lease.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My 99-year lease. Yeah, I like that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty fucking funny, because that works on two levels. That's a joke about the debt you go into with the everyday life, but also the human lifespan. It's kind of a joke on that, too, which is really... Funny to me. And I think Golders Green is a crematorium. I think it's something else too, but it is definitely a crematorium because that's where um, Mark Boland was cremated. But yeah. um, I always took this as one of those George, like wink and a nod, isn't life so absurd? We're all going to die, so it doesn't matter kind of things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> In my limousine. Mm. Read
0: my hearse. (laughs) I mean, that's the joke, is right. You know, no matter what car you're driving, you're going to the crematorium, so it doesn't matter. yeah and this is as far as i know demo only right yeah demo only this came out on a bootleg i think it was the beware of abco bootleg but this has been on heavy rotation for me for the last i don't know 20 years it's one of the george songs i listen to the most i just really for some reason something about this one is just so funny to me it's a little in the vein of i don't care anymore which is a little later on a b-side just something really funny and sardonic and catchy. next we got Dune", one of the songs written in rishikesh that george never recorded immortalized in the beatles anthology when the beatles are sitting under that willow tree or the thridles rather are sitting under that willow tree and uh paul asks george if he wrote any songs and um george remembers Dune" and sings it for paul and uh, paul goes yeah i remember that one and then he starts making weird noises another religious tune I kind of like this one. It's not great. I can see why they didn't pick it up for the White Album and why ultimately George didn't pick it up later, but I like the song. So, Name of a Town in the Lap of the Himalayas.
2: Yeah.
1: Deridun. I like this one okay, too. And it's a a pretty nice little demo, too, with drums and bass, nice little vocal.
0: Clever lyric. He's responding to all the people lined up for the Maharishi camp basically saying, uh, what's the line? See them move along the road in search of life divine, beggars in a gold mine. I think about that line a lot, beggars in a gold mine, because George is saying you don't need anyone to tell you how to do this. You can do it. It's within you. So if you're thinking you need permission from someone else to find God, then you're being ridiculous because God is all around you is the point, I think.
1: What we should probably note as we go through these songs is whether you would want it to be on All Things Must Pass.
0: Either of these songs candidates for the album to you? As much as I love Golders Green, I don't know, like maybe it would have fit. It goes on some other album, right? Yeah, or it could have potentially fit if you did rework that last disc. I Dig Love and Golders Green have some kind of similarity if there was more of a pop or lighter disc or side Mm -hmm. in the thing. So maybe it could pair well with a track like that. I don't know. Per- for me personally, I would rather listen to it more than, say, like, Art of Dying or one of those other ones, but...
1: Yeah, I mean, the question yeah. is, would it fit on the album?
0: Yeah, I don't, know. I don't know. How about you? Neither
1: of these. No. I don't think they go on the album. Like, I can see why these are leftovers, at least from this album. Sure. Now, I could see putting almost any of these on some other album,
3: but... <laughs> Um, um, Go in the jagopala di diar. Daddy, um, um, oh, no, paula, Krishna. Um, um, Go in the jagopala diar. Um, um, oh, no, paula, Krishna. Daddy, oh, no, in the
0: brings us to the third one here, Gopala Krishna, Om Hare Om. Another one I just love. I don't know if I could tell you why. It's it's just a chant. It's one of these types of chants and mantras that George loved. The tune is so catchy. It's very Beatle-y to me. It almost has a little bit of I've just seen a face on it in the rolly kind of acoustic guitar. I don't know. I can't get enough of Gopala Krishna. I, I listen to it a lot.
1: It reminds me a little bit of uh, one of Paul's little guitar and voice ditties. Yes. You know? Now, this I could imagine being on the album.
0: With a big orchestration or something?
1: Yeah, with a big orchestration and the content of the lyrics. That fits well with the album. This one I could picture on the album for sure. This is another one that's a, what you would call a fully realized demo, and then it's got some uh, drums and guitar on it as well as George playing and singing.
3: If your life's alright, doesn't satisfy you You don't get the breaks like some of us do Better work it out, find where you've gone wrong Better do it soon as you don't have You don't belong there. Get back to where you should be. what's going on.
0: There. Well, we can move along then to Sour Milk Sea, another Rishikesh tune, which was demoed by the Beatles during the Easter demo. Uh, I guess you'd call it a session, or you know, the Easter demo project where they mapped out the white album although not picked up for that record instead relegated for Jackie Lomax which we talked a little bit about in our Beatles George episode i quite like sour Milk Sea, and you know by your criteria of what it fit on the album i don't know with a proper production and stuff i could see this on the record
1: yeah i could see it being a maybe a little bit of an outlier the way not in the same way but to the extent that something like i dig love is Something that's got a little less of the all things must pass grandeur. <laughs> sure, sure. And yeah, uh, 1968, August 68, released by Jackie Lomax. Beside The Eagle Laughs At You. Which I don't know that one.
0: Oh, it's, <laughs> I uh, I like that song. His his vocal, I don't know, it's off-putting to me a little. I guess I just don't care for his vocal. Jackie Lomax from the Liverpool group The Undertakers that the Beatles, um, I guess, palled around with back in the day, but... Yeah, it's a shame that we get that track, but without a George vocal. We get a full Beatle presentation of the thing, but it's just lacking that little Beatle magic with the vocals.
3: Everybody's busy on the road Nobody's quite sure where they're going to Everybody's struggling with the highway code Nobody's quite sure what the man to do. Mm -hmm. So, Frankie Chris, everybody's tied up in a solid state. Nobody's without twin reverb. Everybody's in control of his own fate nobody can make it off the cub
0: so the next one here, everybody nobody. this one's okay. I don't really have a strong feeling about everybody nobody. It's um more of a throwaway than the other ones to me personally.
1: yeah, I think this is one of the one of the handful here that don't sound finished, yeah. I don't think it was ready to go on any album. Uh, at the time, it was demoed. And the demo is much more of a just demo. At least the one I have, which is from the 50th anniversary set, is pretty stripped down. It's just vocal and guitar.
3: I once knew a beautiful girl Who had long blonde her and a curl. She looked after me and I looked before her At that time we hadn't occurred As time turned my head and my mind The pleasure seemed harder to find But then it was such that I knew far too much Now I stay home and slowly unwind And I look out the window and see Look at the window and see. I look at the window and see. But I get the feeling it doesn't see me.
0: And I guess you could put window window in that category too, although I quite like window window and it's a shame we never got a full production of that song on any subsequent album. There is a cool YouTube somebody made a mock like, here's what a full-production window-window-could-have-sounded-like thing mm-hmm. using George's vocal and some, like, George 70s Hallmark-type music. Uh-huh. And it's an interesting exercise because uh, it does show you that there... Yeah, this this could have been a thing, actually. Because it's a nice little, you know, chorus. Look out my window and see. Maybe you could have used some lyric polish, but I quite like window-window.
1: Yeah, it needs fleshing out, but I like it too, and it seems like one that could have fit on the album.
0: Similar to like a Dylan-ish kind of thing. Could have fit with some of those Dylan-style songs.
1: Yes, exactly, yeah. Tell me what has happened to
3: you I'll tell you what has happened to me Tell me what's the matter with you I'll tell you what's the matter
0: So that brings us to Tell Me What Has Happened to You. This is another one that feels very unfinished to me, so it's hard to wrap my head around what it would actually have sounded like.
1: Not exactly a fragment, but something that needs a little fleshing out. Although I like the diminished chords in this one.
0: The George Naughty chords?
3: I get tired Of being pushed around Trappled to the ground Every time somebody comes to town I get tired A policeman on the prowl Looking in my bow. Every time somebody's getting high, nowhere to go, there's no place to. And I
0: know it Nowhere to Go is next here. Some interesting insight into George's state of mind at the time, although I don't think of this as really a song more as like a diary entry for George, and I can see why it wasn't picked up.
1: Harmonically, I can see this kind of fitting with the album, though. It it has a long flowing melody and some interesting chord changes, Maybe it feels a little like Hear Me Lord Maybe I'd rather have this than Hear Me Lord I'm not sure Like a finished version of this
0: Wow Yeah, you're making me think about this in ways I I, ha- I sort of wrote this one off a little bit Just as too unfinished But it would be interesting to hear a fully fleshed out version
3: I'm waiting in the queue To call the cosmic empire I want down at the Cosmic Empire An omnipresent view Down at the Cosmic Empire Where one truth come shining clear It right there where long worlds all disappear It shines brighter That the cosmic empire That the cosmic empire That the cosmic empire
0: brings us to cosmic empire one of my favorites i love this song it's not terribly finished but it is a george diddy like we talked about and maybe i'm exposing myself as a diddy head uh, a p diddy if you will um a diddy head <laughs> but uh i love cosmic empire uh, so much it's uh, a song i spin very very often just in mixes and things it's pretty rock and rolly. Ba-ba, ba-ba, yeah, ba-ba, you tend ba-ba. to like your rock and roll. Yeah, it, I guess I would have. Loved. It's rock
1: and rolly, along you know, kind of in in a similar way to uh, Golden. Not as exaggerated as as Golders Green, but they're both kind of bluesy, rock and rolly.
0: I've got a fantasy George record that never existed of like I Dig Love and Golders Green and Cosmic Empire and kind of george album you never really ever got except for maybe like gone trappo or something like toward
2: george's
0: (laughs) 80s career he kind of starts skewing in that direction but yeah i don't know could you imagine george in his prime with these musicians doing a rock and roll album like that that would have been amazing (laughs) it's almost like george and wings or something
1: (laughs) And Cosmic Empire is, that's a religious reference of some kind, I assume, but I'm not sure I know One the assumes, exact... One yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I don't know the exact reference. I don't know if that's, is that a some terminology that, you know, like Maya or something that if we knew about it, we would understand the song better,
0: but... Yeah, I don't know the lyrics. I'm waiting in the queue to go to the Cosmic Empire. I want a front row pew pew that's a, that's a nice little so that's a little yeah a that's phrase. a good
1: rhyme but it's also a religious reference mm-hmm.
0: an omnipresent view i think it's a mix of old-timey rock and roll with god so there you go that's george in a nutshell
1: <laughs> so i guess it's sometime there was a demo
0: of this with klaus and ringo oh yeah day two demo two there's two versions it looks like yeah okay yeah, so that brings us to Mother Divine, uh, another song I love.
3: Mother Divine, Mother Divine, Mother Divine. Mother Divine, Mother Divine, Mother Divine. Hey, Lord, in splendor. Her face, tenderly smiling too Was beauty itself and I know that she loves thee Mother Divine, Mother Divine, Mother Divine Mother Divine, Mother Divine, Mother Divine divine. Mother Divine, Mother Divine, Mother Divine, Mother Divine,
0: Mother Divine, Mother Divine. Mother Divine is another uncooked one, but I quite like Mother Divine because I can hear the potential in it. It's a shame he never finished that one. I, I, I think about that one in Cosmic Empire kind of in similar terms, although Mother Divine is less rocky. Mother Divine is maybe a bit more consistent with other tracks on the record.
1: Mother Divine could be given a pretty rocky treatment, a rock and rolly treatment though. Mm. It's a little like almost Everly Brothers vibe to me. Yeah. It does feel a little early rock and roll to me actually. Just with a little more of a country or or folk vibe alongside it.
0: You know, this is one of those ones he could have given to Ronnie Spector and had a backup singer section really raise that up.
3: Looking back upon my youth The time I always knew the truth I don't want to do it I don't want to say goodbye Go back in the yard and play If I could only have another day I don't want to do it I don't want to make you cry Sit beside the track upon the hill And try to concentrate On all the places I don't want to be You know it shows you that I couldn't wait Come back into my arms again
0: I don't want to do it, which George would revisit for the Porky's 2 soundtrack later on in the early 80s. Um, it's a Porky's 2. I'm pretty sure yeah. it's Porky's 2. Yeah. I love I don't want to do it. I do too. Yeah. <laughs>
1: this is beautiful. Yeah. And this would go really easily on the album.
0: Yes. Looking back, upon- it's a Dylan tune, right? He's covering.
1: This one definitely uh, would fit on the album, and did you say Dylan, did Dylan co-write this? I
0: think it's a Dylan song. It's like a Dylan... Oh, it's a Dylan song. Yeah, it's a Dylan cover.
1: I don't want to... It's like, a, it like an obscure a
0: little... Dylan song. You
1: are correct, yeah. sir. Porky's Revenge.
2: <laughs> Porky's Revenge. That's <laughs> what you
1: meant. Nineteen eighty-five. <laughs> 1985. Yeah, I think was it was like an
0: unreleased I Dylan song or something like that. I had
1: no idea, actually, about that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. That's amazing. So it's a Bob Dylan song. We also have a demo of Mama, You've
0: Been On My Mind, which is a Dylan song. Lots of Dylan floating around on this record, certainly. Yeah. I Don't Want to Do It is, albeit a Dylan song, kind of to me has a lot of reverberations of things like Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. In fact, had George written a companion nostalgia song, as Lennon and McCartney did, for the sergeant pepper sessions this would have fit right in there i know he didn't write it but it it does have that kind of vibe Uh, especially it's looking back and stuff like that it's very reflective and um i love the changes i love the the switch up that especially when it flips that thing to the bridge going on the hill behind the tracks and trying to concentrate you know i love that bit too
1: there's a possibility we would have gotten this as a companion on the album to I'd Have You Anytime.
0: Oh, yeah. And then George just sat on it for 15 years.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, written by Dylan in 68, so that would be, what, Nashville Skyline mm-hmm. era? Yeah. Which would make sense with it being a little melodic to my ear, because that album is more melodic than normal Dylan. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Well, I shouldn't admit that I didn't know that George was on the Porky's Revenge soundtrack. It sounds like something I would know, but I did not know that.
0: (laughs) I did Lethal Weapon really late in life. Like I waited until I was in my 30s to watch Lethal Weapon. And when it got to Lethal Weapon 2, I'm watching it and I'm in the living room And Susanna always knows when I've discovered something Beatly that I find interesting because I start screaming, and when at the end of Lethal Weapon 2, when a George Harrison song comes on, I go, what the fuck? And I start freaking out. (laughs) So, George had a lot of those oddball kind of movie soundtrack things going on in the 80s. Who knew? Well, I knew a little, but I didn't know that. Now- Down to the River is the next one here, parentheses, Rocking Chair Jam, which we actually do get a fleshed-out version of later, all the way on Brainwashed. It's not the exact same song, but it is Mm -hmm. similar enough where you can kind of draw the line from this to that. But really interesting that this was all the way back in 1970, because I had always assumed... That that song was a result of George's Hawaiianness because it has I don't know, kind of a lazy islandish it kind of feel. to It
1: does have a Hawaiian sound. I mean he's yodelling right so I don't immediately think Hawaii
2: <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> <But> <laughs> yodeling.
3: Went down to the river I am a rocking. Chair.
1: a George song is that right I mean he, this is not a cover of some kind
0: I'm pretty sure it's oh look
1: at this rocking chair in Hawaii yeah right and this was called rocking chair jam right down to the river yeah. but I can hear that in it but not the yodeling
0: somewhere <laughs> one of two songs for these all things must pass sessions that would have the exact same title used by a different Beatle later on yeah down to the river being a amish stewart paul mccartney co-write in the off the ground era and i think it's
1: pronounced hamish
0: (laughs) and um i guess out of the blue is not quite out the blue but still pretty similar And that leads to the last one on my list here, which was Almost 12 Bar Honky Tonk, which sounds to me like an Apple Jam holdover. I like Almost 12 Bar Honky Tonk. Why not? It's eight minutes and 34 seconds.
1: Yeah, I don't, don't really need it, but the one time through was fine. I could see it being on Apple Jam. I can't see it being on the album. Same for Down to the River, by the way. Now, to me, maybe the best of all the leftover songs here is I Live for You, <laughs> which I got to know on the 2000 All Things Must Pass. It was among the demos, basically, on the 50th anniversary as well, right?
0: Yeah. And for you listeners who did not hear the moment where Chris brought this song up and I was like, what are you talking about? That's on the record. <laughs> I, for some reason, this song is so familiar to me, I just somehow always assume it's on the album, and it's not, apparently.
1: (laughs) It sounds familiar. I want to say the first time I heard it, I'm thinking, do I know this? I mean, it sounds like finished. Like, why did they leave this off? They didn't have room, because they
0: needed 12 minutes of Isn't It a Pity. It's so finished, though, this song. It's just... I don't know. This is album quality to me.
1: This is album quality, and it fits. It would fit really well. Now, to me, it would have to be a less produced track. It would be a, an if not for you type
3: thing. Right. But. All alone in this world am I Not a curve for this world have I Only you keep mine Yes, it's true. I live for you. Not a thing in this world do I own only sadness from all that has grown. In this darkness I wait for the day Yes, it's true I live for you
1: The lyrics have that same quality of some of the other songs on All Things Must Pass and that it almost comes off as a love song. Yes. But it seems to be, when you look at it more closely, a song about God. It has a similar sentiment. To my sweet Lord, there's this kind of yearning, you know, for many years I wait, that kind of thing. Yeah. All this time, my thoughts return to you. Like, it's this long-term, when will I
0: make it to you? That longing, too, is evident in um, Pete Drake's pedal steel on this. And in fact, now I'm remembering the bootleg. It was not Beware of Abco. The bootleg that I had that I spin continuously, maybe my most spin George collection of songs is uh, a, a bootleg collection called Through Many Years, and that's a line from My Live For You, and that's the one that has Cosmic Empire and all these other things on it. So, that's the one I had mm. been listening to, you know, for, for many, many, many years. This really beautiful track, so beautiful. In fact, I keep forgetting it's not on the record, apparently. There is one I forgot to include as well, which I, I was thinking we could actually just pick up on later, because it appears on the album 33 and a Third, but The track Woman, Don't You Cry For Me does also appear in these demos as well.
1: Yes, and The Light That Has Lighted the World appears in these demos. That's right. Which we'll get to when we get to Material World. There's a cover of Let It Be Me Mm -hmm. by the Everly Brothers among the demos here, and of Gene Vincent's Wedding Bells are breaking up that old gang of mine.
0: Which Paul McCartney references an anthology about the end of the Beatles. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Should we get to a bit of press?
1: Yeah, let's do some press.
0: So this album, to the surprise of no one listening to this, was number one almost across the entire world, with a handful of small exceptions. Number one in U.S. Billboard Top 100, Australia, Canada... The Dutch charts, uh, Japan, it was number four, actually. Norway, number one. Spain, number one. Sweden, number one. UK, number one. And uh, West Germany, number 10. So this was just a slam dunk. And as we talked about a little bit, it was a triple album released around Christmas time with huge commercial appeal. So if someone was looking for a way to fund Crackerbox Palace, (laughs) one Uh might look no further than this incredibly expensive, stupid high-selling album, and the singles continued to chart well into 1971. Massive success. It really can be summed up in Derek Taylor's assessment of the solo Beatles. I think George has proven his point. And then there's some key reviews here. I just plucked a couple out of here. Rolling Stone said, Of all things must pass, an intensely personal statement and a grandiose gesture, a triumph of artistic modesty. NME described the songs as music of the mind, saying they search and they wander, as if in the soft rhythms of a dream. And in the end, he has set them to words which are often both profound and profoundly beautiful another one uh, i picked out here from melody makers richard williams he said of all things must pass the rock equivalent of the shock felt by pre-war moviegoers when garbo first opened her mouth in a talkie garbo talks harrison is free
1: I have a couple quotes from Simon Lang that I want to share, one of which surprised me. The first one is, despite its transatlantic number one status, the vagaries of fashion have not been kind to All Things Must Pass. Only since its 2001 reissue has it been positively reappraised. Really? That doesn't sound right to me. That doesn't sound right to
0: me either, but okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it seems to me that that album was all... I always remember that album being really highly regarded and at the end, though, he he says this, On all things must pass, George Harrison stands emotionally naked in front of his audience and his God. It is for this compelling emotional power that the record will always be a bona fide classic.
0: That was how I always understood the
1: album to be viewed.
0: Maybe he's referring to George coming in and out of popularity. At the start of the Beatles' solo careers, I think it's safe to say that George was certainly the most commercially successful coming out of the beatles with this album and with those songs you know followed closely by concert for bangladesh and things like that so that same kindness in critical kindness and commercial kindness was extended to the follow-up to this as well but then there's a steep decline for george and while he does continue to have some hits throughout the 70s, suddenly he starts getting beaten up by the same publications that had sung his praises a couple of years before. Much like McCartney went from pop lightweight to legend in his own lunchtime today. You know, I mean, these things right. have a habit of changing. So maybe that's what Simon's referring to there in the sense that. Yeah, it was really big of its time, but maybe it sounds a little dated, and George had never quite picked up all the steam that he had gotten right after the breakup, which, by the way, isn't really fair anyway, since Cloud9 was his swan song and was like this huge commercial seller, so I don't know. That's the justification I can come up with. Well, we can't leave the press section without a little Robert Christa guy. Oh, hey. Here
1: we go. You ready for this? I mean, I th- I, can, yeah. I, can I guess? I think he's going to be kind. <laughs> okay. As a slave of the very Maya, Pigeon Hindi for the Concrete World, Harrison warns against, I am obliged to point out that playing headsy with the universal mind is not introspection, and that the international pop music community is not a group. Presumably, the featurelessness of these three discs, right down to the anonymity of the multi-tracked vocals, reflects Harrison's notion of truth, and he's welcome to it. But he's never been good for more than two songs per album, and after My Sweet Lord I Start to Get Stuck... C. Oh, shit. <laughs> Ay aye, aye, this guy.
0: <laughs> wow, never been better than two songs an album.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Who is he, Jeff Emmerich? Jesus I'll Christ. I'll continue checking in with this guy from time
0: to time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. You got to love the chutzpah of that man, I swear.
1: What I didn't point out while I was reading is that he capitalizes universal mind and international pop music community. <laughs> <laughs> what a dick. Um, <laughs> well, so not everybody loves it, but most people love it. I mean, most Beatles
0: fans and rock fans, I think, admire this album. I would put this in the top echelon of my George stuff. Although with George, it's I do find myself returning to particular tracks, more than others, and it's less like McCartney, where I can very cleanly point and say, that is my favorite McCartney album, or, you know, that kind of thing. I don't I don't know if I can really do that with George. I think I ultimately do do that, but for sort of subversive reasons, which we'll get to in 1974. Mm. But... Oh, okay. Um, yeah, of this album, there are certainly some of my favorite George songs on it, whether they be outtakes or actual album tracks. Whatever you think about it, It's a beautiful statement from somebody who didn't always get his due. And this is a great opportunity for him to get his due. You hear them joking about it in the Get Back documentary when he's like, you know, I'm thinking about a solo thing or something. And he's like, yeah, you know, like a a George album, you know, and he sort of laughs about it, you know, like it's this (laughs) joke that it would be a George album. But this album is no joke.
1: It's no joke. I hold it at the very top of George's work, but also at the very top of just solo Beatles work. And I think it's one of those solo Beatles albums that is really worthy of Beatles, you know, Mm. where it's like, yeah, this is the kind of quality we were expecting from the Beatles going into the 70s. This is the Beatles delivering on their solo work, which for me, early Paul and early John are as well. Very exciting time in 1970, whether people knew it at the time or not, you know, or 70 and 71 with all this great solo Beatles stuff coming out. Yeah. All right, Chris. Well, this was fun. This was huge. It's fun and huge. But I think the album warrants detailed discussion, and that's what we specialize in here. So, <laughs> yeah, ha- happy to do it. <laughs> really fun talking to you about this. So we'll be on to our next George album, finally, after this. And we'll go out with a little preview of that.
2: My
3: friend came to me Sadness Treat oh Although I couldn't feel the pain, I knew I had to try Now I'm asking all of you to help us save some